I feel like I need to welcome you to our Easter service. <laughs> Easter in November, I'm down with that. <clears throat> Anything's possible in 2020, right? Well, there's a reason why we're singing about the resurrection of Christ this morning, and we will discover why in a, a few moments. I'd like to first welcome you to our worship gathering. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day. Was this the coldest morning so far this year? Well, maybe not this year because you have winter in the early part of the year, but at least now, right? It seems like it was very cold. I know I woke up, felt like I didn't have enough covers, uh, but um, I don't know. It was just cold, but I'm glad that the weather is changing. I'm tired of the heat. Anyhow, last Sunday, in our exposition of the book of Job called Sovereign Suffering, we examined the second part of Job's response to his friend Zophar in chapter 13. We walked through the whole chapter. We looked at Job's irritation, his indication, his intercession. We learned about Job's incredible hope, which seemed to kind of come out of nowhere, right? I mean, he's been in despair, and all of a sudden there was this, this burst of hope and it was kind of intriguing and interesting, right? The, kind of the middle of all this despair as he's talking to these insensitive, cruel friends of his. He says, though God slay me, I will hope in Him. That was chapter 13, verse 15a. And we learned, really a lesson that we drew from, from Job's example there. We learned that, that we can have hope like this in the midst of our suffering if we will what? If we will refocus. If we will get our eyes off our circumstances and put them back on our living hope, Jesus Christ. If we will get our eyes off our circumstances and, and put them on heaven, the things above. If we will put our eyes on God's promises. If we will realize once again and even entertain the, the purpose for our suffering, which is not our bad, but our good, our sanctification. And then also we learn that we can refocus and get our eyes off our circumstances and put our focus on the fact that God is sovereign and in control. God's sovereignty, His, His being over all things and ordaining all things for His purposes and for the good of His people, that's, that's a great comfort to us in the midst of our suffering. It is, at least for me. And this morning, we will examine the third and final part of Job's response to Zophar in chapter 14. It has, like all the other chapters, it has several sections. I see three here, and I'm going to give you three L's. And, you know, whenever I give letters and numbers and stuff, my wife's like, why do you do that? And, and uh, because I think for me, and maybe for you, it helps just for us to better break down the sections and, and to understand the passages. And so usually I just do an exposition right through the text, but lately I've been getting the, giving these these letters and these sorts of things. It just helps us for teaching purpose. And it helps us to teach through really, really massive sections at a time, which is not something that I'm comfortable with, to be honest with you. So three L's this morning. We're going to look at Job's lament, uh, his languishing, and then we're going to look at his longing, his longing. If you would be so kind as to please take your Bibles and turn over to Job 14. I'll give you a moment to turn there. And I want to encourage you um, it's important that we actually go ahead and open our Bibles, or if you don't have a physical Bible, you ought to have one with you, but if not, you use a phone. Just make sure that you're following along, along in your Bible app on your phone, but it's really important that we actually physically follow along while the Word is being taught, and 
there's a number of reasons quickly just it really helps to familiarize us with the Word of God for one thing. And then there's a good chance that as you're following along as I teach that you might see something that I miss because that can happen. And so God might, might give you something that I did not see and that would be a real encouragement to you and then a shame for me later. So, um, but it's good to follow along because you might see something that I don't see. By way of context... Back in chapter 13, verse 23, Job acknowledged that he is a sinner. He admitted to that. He acknowledged it. He stated it. He knows that he is a sinner. And then in chapter 13, verse 24, he acknowledged that sin hides people from God and makes them God's enemies. This is something else that he testified. And then in chapter 13, verse 26, he asked if God was judging him for his past sins, maybe something that he had done from his youth or childhood. Now, those three lines in this context here, those three lines reveal something very important about Job, especially about his theology. They reveal that he understood our true problem as human beings. They reveal that he understood humanity's really, truly greatest dilemma. And that is the fact that people are sinners. All people. That is the fact that people are separated from God because of their sin. And it reveals that he understands that God actually judges sin. Now, in the first section here of this new text that we're looking at, Job begins to build an argument that supports his theological position, that everyone's a sinner, that sin separates us from God, and that God actually judges sin. This is really what he illustrates through this first section and really through the whole passage. He uses poetry to identify sin's devastating effects on himself and on all of mankind. And he is deeply grieved as, as he communicated, as he spoke here in this text. He's, he's, he's mourning, he's grieving, he's saddened, he's terribly saddened by sin's effects. Now, I think we ought to pray before we actually get to work. Father, we just humble ourselves once again and ask that you open our eyes and ears and hearts to the truth, that you help us to understand our true condition and... You help us to understand the work that you've done on our behalf through Christ. We pray that you're glorified now through this text. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's pick up where we left off last Sunday. We're going to go to our first L, our first L. Job laments the devastating effects of sin. We actually have to rewind and go back to chapter 13 and look at verse 28. We see this in verse 28 of 13 all the way through verse 6 of 14. Let's start at verse 28 of the last chapter. This is where Job says, again, we covered it last week, we cover it again now. He says, man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. What Job does here is he identifies sin's first devastating effect, and that is waste. Waste. Sin causes man to waste away like a rotten thing, like rotten fruit, like 
shredded lettuce in your crisper. Boy, that stuff doesn't last long, does it? You buy it like you haven't even opened it yet. In two days, it's already black and mushy. When you open it, it really goes south really quickly. And that's truly what sin does to us. It, it, it wastes us away. It, it, it makes us like a rotten thing, like rotten fruit, like a, a blackened banana. It does this. And we think about the implications of his statement here about sin. How does it rot us away? How does it make us waste away? Well, did sin not bring diseases into our world? I mean, the world was a perfect place prior to sin entering the world through Adam and Eve. And, and with that sin came all of sin's devastating effects, diseases and these sorts of things. We would all admit that, that disease causes man to waste away like a rotten thing. Think of some of the biblical diseases like leprosy, which is literally a person's flesh rotting away off of their bodies. We think of some of the diseases that, that we have today that, that we deal with, various cancers. Cancers do what? They, they rot the body away. We think of AIDS, a sin-induced disease, AIDS. AIDS tears the body down, destroys the immune system. Hepatitis, influenza, right? The flu. I remember one time I was filling out an application for a job and it said, have you ever had any diseases? I put influenza. That's the technical term for flu. And the guy that was trying to hire me said, man, I don't know if we can hire you if you've had that. And I said, it's the flu. He goes, oh, I thought it was something else. Because nobody ever says influenza. He thought it was like some crazy kind of like, whoa, influenza. Yeah, it's called the flu. He's like, oh, you're good. The flu, the flu. COVID. Why not say COVID? Well, I don't think it's reached the status of pandemic, but it's certainly a lethal flu. These are all diseases that, that, that sin is behind. And I'm not, I'm not saying that a person sins and then they get COVID. I'm saying that sin has brought all of these maladies into the world, into creation. We have cancers because of sin in the world. Sin has brought all these things in. According to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30, the, the sin of envy, like being envious of what other people have and what have you, it makes the bones rot. So sin rots out the bones. Unconfessed sin can cause even a believer to waste away. David experienced this in Psalm 32, verse 3. He said, for when I kept silent, meaning that he wasn't confessing his sins. He says, my bones wasted away. My bones wasted away. And creation itself is wasting away, rotting. Why? Because of sin. This is why creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God to be set free from its bondage to decay. Romans 8, 19 through 21 and Job says toward the end of his verse, like 28 verse B, or 28B, he says, sin basically ravages, ravages man like moths ravage a garment. So the first devastating effect of sin is that it just, it causes waste and rot. It destroys, and we see it destroying through various diseases and maladies and these sorts of things. And we go to chapter 14, verse 1 now. He continues. He says, man who is born of a woman is 
few of days and full of trouble. Job identifies sin's second devastating effect as trouble. Trouble. Sin brings trouble into the lives of all who are born of a woman. Who's born of a woman? Everyone. Now, some experience sin's trouble right at birth through complications and defects. According to the University of California, roughly 140,000 babies in the U.S. are born with physical abnormalities, with mental retardation, and other learning disabilities such as autism. Think about that. Every year, 140,000 babies are born with those sorts of, those sorts of defects. These stats will blow your mind. The child mortality rate in the U.S. for children under 5 was 463 deaths per 1,000 births in 1880. Almost half of the children who were born died before they were 5. 46% of our nation's children did not make it to 5 years old in the 1800s. That's incredible! Some experience... Sins trouble before they are born. Today in the U.S., one in 160 births is stillborn. Roughly 24,000 babies die in the womb each year. Why? Sin. Under the guise of women's health care, roughly 50 million babies have been murdered in the womb in the U.S. since 1973. The sin of abortion. Really, it's the sin of promiscuity, trying to deal with your sin of having sex out of wedlock or whatever it is. You do that, and then you try to erase the problem that you've created by eliminating the baby. Now, I'm not factoring in other types of abortion or life-saving measures or any of that thing. I'm just talking about babies that were just slaughtered in the womb because of sinful parents. You can see how sin has an effect after birth, for children and babies and how it has an effect before they even leave the womb. Some of them don't even make it. Sin. We all know that those who make it past birth experience sin's trouble, right? That would be basically us. You think of toddlers and small children, they deal with sin's trouble. Adolescents and teenagers, they create sin's trouble. (laughs) Young, middle-aged, and older adults, all of us. All are impacted by sin's trouble. No one escapes it. No one. Since all people are sinners by birth, right? Psalm 51, verse 5, I was conceived in sin, David says. We see it in Romans 3.23. We don't have to go far to find sin's trouble. We really don't have to go outside of our own house or outside of ourselves. Just look in the mirror and you'll see sin's trouble. Our own sins fill our days with trouble, don't they? And guess what? So do the sins of others. Their sins fill our days with trouble, don't they? It always happens like that. Things are going pretty good and you're living a confessional life and things are good between you and the Lord and then somebody you know that you're close to gets involved in some kind of sin and it just brings destruction into your life. Happens all the time. In fact, if you're desiring to go into pastoral ministry, you better consider that because that's a daily thing. 
We just don't have to go far to find sin's trouble. It's everywhere. Job is right. Man's days are few and full of trouble. Why? Because of sin. Because of sin in our lives and sin in the world. That's Job's point. We go to verse 2. He's continuing to illustrate this. Speaking of man, he comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Job here identifies sin's third devastating effect as the brevity of life. We come out like a flower but immediately wither. We appear like a shadow but continue not. We fade away. What he's saying is is that sin has caused lifespans to shorten, for life to be short. Yeah, it might astonish you. Maybe you don't know this. Maybe you do. But people actually used to live to about eight to 900 years, way back, way back. A guy named Methuselah, which Bruce calls Ann sometimes, which is not very kind, <laughs> died at 969 years old. How many ele- elections did he have to endure? Lord have mercy. I got one in 2020. I'm ready to leave this place. Methuselah died at 969 years. Genesis 5, verse 27, Noah died. How how old do you think Noah was when he died? 950 years old. Noah. Genesis 9, verse 28, But sin led to the flood, Genesis 6, 7, and 8, right? And after the flood, lifespans became significantly shorter. Arpashad was born about two years after the flood. He lived 438 years. Well, you can see the difference. You've got the flood, and, and right after the flood, guys aren't living to 800, 900 anymore. Arpashad's a prime example. Genesis 11, verses 10 through 12. Peleg uh, was born 100 years after the flood. He lived 239 years. Well, that's way shorter. Genesis chapter 11, verses 16 through 18. Abraham was born 535 years after the flood. He lived to 175. Genesis 25, verse 7. Moses was born 957 years after the flood. He lived 120 years. Deuteronomy 34, verse 7. According to the federal government, some stats that I looked up, the average lifespan of an American is 78.7 years. From the flood... To America today, lifespans have dropped roughly 871.3 years. That's pretty incredible when you think about it. In light of eternity, 8 to 900 years is but a breath. 78 years is even less, a mere vapor, right? James 4.14. And we know that not everyone makes it to 78. We all know people and and have loved people, have had people in our lives that didn't make it anywhere near that, not even out of their 30s. And all know people who have passed away much earlier. We come out like a flower and immediately wither. We appear like a shadow and continue not. What is he saying? Life is short. Why? Because of sin. That's Job's point. Sin has shortened lifespans. Sin takes lives. Sin makes us sick. Sin destroys. Verse 3, he continues, he says, And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? 
Job identifies sin's fourth devastating effect as judgment. Judgment. Job actually felt that his past sins were being judged. That's why he was going through all this calamity and suffering. Chapter 13, verses 26 and 27, he talks about what? Am I, am I getting judged for my old sins? And he also believed that God was preparing to bring him into his presence to face ultimate or final judgment. But we know this was untrue. Job was being tested. He wasn't being judged. He was being used. He wasn't being punished or disciplined, right? He was a blameless, upright man. God was using him to teach Satan a lesson. Despite being wrong about himself, because really he's applying all of this to himself, despite being wrong about himself, Job's points, they remain, especially here. God sees all, Hebrews 4.13. God records all our actions, good and bad, Proverbs 5.21. And God will judge our sins, even things done in secret, Romans 2, 1-16. God's holiness, His righteousness, His justice demand that sin be judged. It has to be. God will never let sin slide. People today seem to be getting away with murder with all the corruption and lies and deception and wickedness and all the things they do. But make no mistake, God is watching and recording their every word and work, and He will unleash devastating judgment upon them at the appointed time. Nobody gets away with sin, even when they appear to get away with it. They don't. Every sinner will have his or her day in court before the great white throne, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, unless they are in Christ, the one whom God judged, the one whom God punished for our sins. He's the only way out of it. But I think we would all admit that people today do not take sin and judgment seriously, do they? They scoff at it. They laugh at it, if they're even aware of it. And sadly, we see this among many believers. I should say, quote-unquote believers. We don't know if they're real Christians, but we see this in churches. If, quote-unquote, Christians took judgment and sin and these things seriously, as, at least as seriously as Job did, their lives would look like his life, upright and blameless and innocent. They would avoid sin. And the churches they belong to would be different, wouldn't they? They would look like the Bible, not like the world. Sin brings judgment, guaranteed. It either brought judgment on Christ or it brings it on those who are not in Christ, who reject Christ, but it always brings judgment. It either went to Christ or it goes to us. And that's really Job's point. That's a devastating effect of sin, and that's divine judgment. No one escapes it. Verse 4, he says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And he says, there is not one. Job identifies sin's fifth devastating effect as impurity, impurity, uncleanness. Sin makes us impure. It makes us unclean before God. And there is nothing that we or others can do about it for us. He says there is not one who can make himself clean. There's no one out there that can even do this for us. 
We can't make ourselves clean before God. The good that we do produces no spiritual cleansing to make us acceptable to God. Our righteous deeds are like a a polluted garment, like a soiled menstrual rag. And I'm not saying that to be crude. That's exactly what Isaiah says in 64.6. He's talking about period rags. That's how filthy sin makes us. And, And our good deeds, they're nothing more than that. You think about it, according to Deuteronomy, when a woman had her monthly cycle, she was unclean for seven days, and anyone who would touch her would be made unclean. Then you'd have to go through a ritual. That's how serious that particular part of a woman's life was. And, and Isaiah is drawing from that, saying, look, look, our works before God outside of Christ, they're, they're unclean like a woman is unclean during her period. Better yet, he even points to the object she uses to keep herself sanitary, which is vile to me, but that's how adamant God is about this. We can't make ourselves clean. Our our works are, are a filthy rag. And others cannot make us clean. Popes going around, popes and Catholic priests going around and, and absolving sin and making people clean. They can't make anyone clean. Popes can't make us clean, priests can't make us clean, bishops can't do it, pastors can't do it, elders can't do it, monks can't do it, gurus can't do it, imams can't do it, rabbis can't do it, shaman can't do it, no one can do this. Job is right, he says, there is not one. Sin has put man in a filthy, helpless state, dirty and doomed. And yet people today think the scales will be tipped in their favor when they appear before God in judgment. They believe the good they do in life will outweigh their sins and make them clean, make them worthy of heaven. Those who think this way, which is vast swaths of people in our nation and throughout the world, those who think this way are a double affront to God. They trample underfoot the Son of God, and profane the blood of the covenant, Hebrews 10.29, which is the only means by which sinners can be made clean. They not only reject Christ, they make themselves Christ. If you think that you can clean yourself up through your good deeds, you've made yourself Christ. That's an abomination. People who think this way, they become their own saviors. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who do this? A fury of fire will consume these adversaries, Hebrews 10, 27. Job knew he couldn't clean himself up. And guess what? So did Eliphaz. Chapter 4, verse 17. Both men understood this fundamental biblical truth that only God can make sinners clean. Only God can do this. There's no one else. They understood this. The question is, do we? Do we understand that that God makes sinners clean through Christ alone? That's the only way to be made clean, to be purified? That's the truth. That's what... Job is pointing at, even though he doesn't recognize or understand the lasting or prophetic implications of Christ's ministry, he doesn't get that, but he's, he's on the biblical truth here of it. 
verses 5 and 6. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. As Job continues to pray, because this is a prayer here, as he continues to pray, he asks God to look away from him and to leave him alone so that he can what? Enjoy his remaining days like a hired hand. Job figures this would be his best option since God has determined his days, numbered his months, and appointed limits he cannot pass. In other words, this would be his best option since God has thrust him because of judgment into all this suffering. He figures, well, maybe if I could just get God to look away from me and leave me alone, I could enjoy the rubble of my life, something that's left here. I could just be like a hired hand. Really what Job is pointing at here is that unless sin is dealt with, human beings can hope for no better than this. In other words, their best option would be for God to leave them alone so they can enjoy their short little lives like an assembly line worker enjoys his short little coffee breaks. According to Job, this would be the lost sinner's best life now. They're heaven on earth because, quite frankly, that's as close to heaven as they're going to get. Let's summarize what are sin's devastating effects according to these 12 verses. They are waste, trouble, brevity, judgment, impurity, and hope that is based on God's absence. (laughs) Sadly, Job believed he was experiencing all of the above because of his past sins, right? Verse 26 of chapter 13. Guess what? He was wrong. He was wrong about himself. He was wrong about, he was right about the truth of sin, but he was wrong about himself. As I said, he was blameless. He was upright. He was actually being used by God. But because of all of this suffering, he had this grief, uh, this grief-induced um, confusion, which happens. This is the first L. Right, he laments the devastating effects. Now, we move to number two, the second L. Job languishes in the face of death, sin's end result. We see this in verses 7 through 12. I'll read that whole section and only give a couple paragraphs on it. There's a couple sections in here that are shorter than others, or at least shorter in my commentary on them. Verse 7, for there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last. And where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. This is just pure sorrow, and he's just languishing here in his circumstances. In vivid imagery, Job speaks of a tree when it is cut down. Just imagine with me, think with your mind's eye of a, maybe a beautiful tall tree. Have you ever been up to the redwoods? Think of one of those big, beautiful, majestic redwood trees. See it in your mind's eye, and then see lumberjacks sawing it and cutting it down, and it falls. That's the end of it. Except it isn't. Even after a a long time, if the conditions are right, 
it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. As long as it has roots or as long as its roots are intact, there is some hope for it. This is what Job is illustrating. He says, but for a man, there is no such hope. When a man is cut down, he is destroyed, root and branch. He breathes his last, and there is no more hope for him. Like a, a lake or riverbed going permanently dry, there is no hope for him ever. So a man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Job's point is that if sin is not dealt with, it leads to death. And death really is the end of life and, and hope and light on earth, isn't it? Yes. That's his point. If sin isn't dealt with, death comes and that is it in Job's mind. And he thinks that's what he's facing. Now we can move to the third L. Number three, Job longs for the ultimate defeat of sin and death. We see this in verses 13 through 17. We pick it up at 13. Listen to what he says here. He's pleading with God. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. Look at the exclamation point. Remember, there's not that many of them in, in the book of Job, and Job uses more than anyone else. Job tells God he would rather be hidden in Sheol, the, the place of the dead, than to, to remain above ground in the presence of God's wrath. That's what he thinks happening. He asks God to appoint a set time, preferably after his wrath has passed, what to remember him is what he says. Ultimately, what Job wants is for God to to remove him from sin's presence and, and devastating effects and the judgment that comes upon it. He wants God to take him out so that he doesn't have to deal with waste and trouble and brevity and judgment and purity and false hope. This is what he's crying out for. Have you ever felt that way about your own sin? Just get me out of this place, God. Just send Christ or send an aneurysm. Get me out of here. I don't want to deal with this anymore. Our own sins can drive us to this point. And guess what? So can the sins of others. Except sometimes we're saying, take them out, not me. <laughs> Have you ever felt in your soul this desperate longing to get out of here? Because you're so fed up with your sin and its effects on your life. That's Job here. But he's also worried that nothing good will come along after he dies. He wants to go down into, into Sheol so he can escape the, the remaining portion of God's judgment and the effects of sin and all these things. But the funny thing about it is, is that Sheol is not a safe place where God's judgment and wrath are absent. Not typically. That's like saying, I want to go down into hell where I'll be safe. Okay, you're, you're confused here, bro. Sheol is typically the way we think of it. It's a subterranean prison where God punishes the wicked dead. Job doesn't seem to understand this, or, or maybe he does, because I have heard stressed out people say things like, I'd rather be in hell than to be here dealing with this. Is that what Job means? Maybe that's what he meant. I don't think so. I think... Sheol in verse 13 refers to the grave, not the subterranean prison that we typically think of. 
And sometimes it does just mean the place of the dead. And what is the place of the dead? It's six feet under or in a tomb. I think that's what he's saying. I'd just rather be dead and buried. I'd rather be dead and buried in a grave than to be above ground dealing with all this pain. That's what he's saying. But in any case, he doesn't want to remain in Sheol, does he? Because he asked God to appoint a set time to remember him, which means what? To bring him back. Kill me and put me in the grave, but set a time that you will call me out of the tomb, is what he's saying. What was he hinting at here? What have we been singing about all morning? Resurrection. See, now it's coming to view here. Now you understand why we had resurrection songs. What is resurrection? In just a simple description, I would would define it as the ultimate defeat of sin and death. It is the destruction of sin and death. That's what resurrection is. It is the overcoming of those two powerful sources. That's why he's longing for it here. He's longing for resurrection because he knows that will put an end to it all. Listen to this. Job is essentially asking God to basically kill him, go ahead and end my life. He's asking God to bury him, and then he's asking God to raise him up Later on, after God's wrath has passed and sin is no longer an issue, he is requesting death, burial, and resurrection. What is he pointing to here? He's pointing to the gospel. We see the gospel right here in the book of Job. Unbeknownst to him, Job was pointing to the gospel. He didn't know, but that's what he's doing. And guess what? His prayerful request here, it was ultimately met by God 2,200 years later when God did what? Sent Christ into the world to die for our sins, to be buried, to rise from the grave on the third day, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for all who repent and trust in Him. Hallelujah, right? 1 Corinthians 15 3 and 4. That's what Job is pointing to. That's what he's longing for. He wants it for himself. He doesn't understand Christ at this point, but ultimately what he's pointing to and illustrating is the gospel itself. That's what he's requesting. Verses 14 and 15, he says, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. This is what he says to God, emphatically just crying out to God, may it be so. He really is asking an honest question, or he wants to know if man could live again after he dies. You see, Job's not exactly sure. He wants to know if if resurrection is a reality. And we need to remember that Job lived before Scripture was written. He didn't have Psalms and Isaiah or Daniel, which are books that clearly present the doctrine of resurrection. He didn't have access to these things. Psalm 49, verse 15, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, from the power of the grave. He will receive me. That's resurrection, folks. Isaiah 26, verse 19, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. 
You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. What is that? That is resurrection. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What is he talking about? He's talking about resurrection, right? The resurrection of, of God's people and the resurrection of the dead. Job had none of these passages to, to study, to research. He had zero Old Testament. In fact, his book was probably the first book of the Old Testament to be written. And when he was saying these things, somebody wasn't sitting there recording it. It wasn't written yet. And yet, he was somehow familiar with resurrection. Somehow he, he understood it a little bit. But verse 14 has the appearance of wishful thinking, doesn't it? Like Job isn't sure, but he wants it to be true. We can deduce that his understanding of resurrection was underdeveloped and immature, but at least it was there. He has some idea. And even though he doesn't have Scripture, he has the God who reveals truth. Job tells God that he would wait all the days of his service for his renewal to come, his resurrection. The Hebrew word for service is sometimes rendered army or war. Here it carries the idea of hard military service. Job will go through hard military service until his renewal comes. In other words, he would be willing to endure anything, no matter how difficult, even death itself, even Sheol, the grave, for the sake of his own personal renewal. That's how bad he wants it. I'd go through anything. Hell on earth. I'm going through hell on earth. I'm going through hard military service right now. But, but I have the hope of renewal is what he's saying. If he were in Sheol, in the grave, and God called to him, Job says what? I would answer you, meaning he would rise and come forth. This sounds like John 11, 43 through 44, doesn't it? Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. He comes right out of the grave. And, and that's what it sounds like Job is, is pointing to here. If you, just, if you just called me by my name, I would, I would just come back to life and, and step out of the grave and come back and be with you. That's what he's saying. This is amazing. And I want you to notice the, the personal touches he includes here. He illustrates his personal relationship with God, the intimacy they shared. God would, God, Job says, I, I want you to call me back from the dead. Why? Because you long for the work of your hands. Who, who is Job? Job is the work of God's hands that you would want so badly the work of your hands that you would call my name and bring me back. Oh. God would raise Job because he created him, because he loves him, and because he wants to restore the fellowship he had with Job. Intimacy is also seen in several second-person pronouns and a single personal pronoun here. Look at... Look at I mean, underline these words here. You would call you, underline that. And I, underline I, I would answer you. 
you would long for the work of your hands. What is Job telling us here? He's telling us that, that with God, he had a you and I kind of relationship, like two close friends. Verses 16 and 17, Job continues, For then you would number my steps, you would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. Job is an Old Testament gospel preacher. This is astonishing. Job says after he is raised from the dead, God would number his steps. He realizes God still does things like this because God is sovereign, but he says this time it would be different with you, God. You would no longer keep track of my sin, he says here. You would no longer continue to punish me for my past sins, Job says here. You'd number my steps, but you would, you would seal up my transgressions in a bag. You would permanently seal my transgressions in a bag. You, would, you wouldn't hold my sin against me or watch me and count my sins anymore. No, you would seal them up in a bag permanently. It's the glad bag that can't open. You would cover over my iniquity once and for all, Job says. Unbeknownst to him, Job was again pointing to the gospel. His request, what? He's requesting this of God and his request would be, in the ultimate sense, met by God 2,200 years later when God sent Christ into the world to seal up our transgressions in a bag and cover over our iniquity once and for all, right? Hebrews 10, 12, and verse 17. That's what Christ came to do, to take away our sin forever. This is what Job wants. He wants what Christ would come to do. He may not have been aware of the prophetic implications of his request, but he understood that if sin is dealt with, then and only then can he hope to come back from the dead into relationship with the God he loves. Sadly, the hope we see here in verses 13 and 17 is quickly, very quickly replaced by more misery, more despair. We move to our fourth L. Number four, Job loses hope. He had it, but then he loses hope in the face of God's judgment. Verses 18 through 22. And we'll just read that section and, and begin to wrap up because it's, it's really self-explanatory in a sense, or at least I can decode the poetry for you. Verse 18, he says, but the mountain, remember he's asked for all these wonderful things, resurrection and his sins to be dealt with, and then he switches to this. He says, but, that's never good. When you're asking for those things and you say, but, right? Right? There's the hopelessness again. It's come back. He does this in his letters, right? We have these spurts of hope and then surrounded by tons and tons of despair. He says, but the mountain falls and crumbles away and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he perceives it not. He feels only 
the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. Man, this is like Debbie Downer on steroids. I mean, he just went from like, ah, to ah. I mean, he's just annihilated here through this poetry. He uses vivid imagery, uh, the vivid imagery of irreversible erosion to help us feel the, the hopelessness of life under sin and judgment. The winds, the rain, the floodwaters wear away even rocks and mountains. They cause landslides, and they are irreversible. No process known to man can put erosion into reverse. So it is with God's judgment. It, according to Job, destroys the hope of man to the point that no hope can come back. Just as the, the hardest granite on earth cannot resist the waters of erosion, so the proudest man on earth cannot prevail against the judgment of God. He says, you prevail forever against him, which means you can't ever beat him. If he's judged you, that's it. You can't prevail against him. He says, you prevail forever against him, and he, and he passes away. Speaking of the man, he passes away. His face is changed, and, and it becomes lined with age, right? He says, it even impacts his countenance. countenance. His face is changed and becomes lined with age, and is finally, what? Frozen in death. And God, then Job says through poetry, God just sends him away from his presence into Sheol, into the grave. And when that happens, man becomes isolated from his nearest and dearest. His sons may meet in honor and success, or they may meet with humiliation. But in both instances, that man who has been judged by God, he's not aware of any of it. He is all alone under the judgment of God, feeling his own pain and grieving for himself. <laughs> Closing. According to Job, this is the misery of life on earth if sin is not dealt with. And for some crazy reason, he thought that his sin had not been dealt with, and that's why he was dealing with with all of these things. I tell you, he was right about these things. He was right in describing sin's devastating effects and the hopelessness of those who are under God's judgment and these sorts of things. He was absolutely right, doctrinally right, theologically right. What he wrote is true, but he was wrong about himself, as usual, right? He was not suffering from the devastating effects of his past sin. He was not facing death. He was not, um, you know, death, which is sin's end result. He was not facing God's judgment. None of this. These things are all true universally, but they weren't true of him. No, he wasn't. None of that was true of him. I think what he was actually doing, and we see it in chapter 1 and 2, is he was under attack by Satan. He wasn't under attack by God and paying for his sins or any of that stuff. This was the work of Satan, and of course, God authorized it. He had divine purposes for it. But I think what Job does here is he confuses one with the other. He doesn't recognize Satan's destructive work in his life or in the world, and he thinks that it's all God doing this to him because, you know, he stole a lollipop from T.G. and Y. back when he was a kid. I actually did that. I don't know where that came from, but 
My dad walked me back in and made me present myself to the manager, and I was like, uh. <laughs> he thinks he's being judged over past sins, but this is not God doing this to him. This is, God allows it, but this is not coming directly from the hand of God toward him. It's coming through the adversary because God has a big plan here. But Job does confuse one with the other. He thinks God's doing this to him when, in fact, it was Satan. And I think that it's easy for us in the midst of suffering to make the same mistake. We often think that God is judging and punishing us for something we did in the past when stuff doesn't go very good, don't we? In fact, some of you have been taught that, right? You've been taught that in whatever churches you were part of or whatever theology you were part of at some point, that, you know, if life is haywire and it's not good and it's not prosperous and all those things, then you better find out where that sin is or what it is that you did in the past because God is clearly judging you and not prospering you right now, right? You've been taught that. Some of you have been taught that garbage. I think we'd all admit that we've all felt that way man, I wonder if God is, is dealing with me now for what I did a few years ago or a few minutes ago, <laughs> right? <laughs> or in my case, 27 seconds ago. We all felt that way. But you know what? The gospel should forever silence those twisted thoughts because Christ was judged and punished in our place. God is not wrathful toward His children. He was wrathful toward our vicarious substitute, Christ. Christ took every ounce of God's terrible, terrible divine wrath. He didn't take 75% leaving 25% for God's people when they screw up. Well, here's a little bit. He took it all. He paid it all. We need to understand this. The gospel should just eliminate any sorts of thoughts like that. Well, I think I'm just paying for something I did. No, Christ paid for what you did in full. might surprise you, but God has only love for His children. He has only tender care for His children. He has only gentle instruction for His children. He has also fatherly discipline for His children because He disciplines those whom He loves. He is our Abba, our Daddy, Romans 8. 15, if we have trouble in our lives, we do need to test ourselves to make sure that sin is not the cause. Sin will mess up our lives, but not because of God's response to it. Do you understand what I just said? Sin is fouling up your life, not God's response to it. God's response to your sin is not wrath and judgment. He did that to Christ. God's response to your sin is mercy. He's not messing up your life 
because you sinned. The sin that you're committing is messing up your life. Satan could be messing up your life. Sin will mess up our lives, not because of God's response to it, but because it has what? Devastating effects. It damages everything it touches. It kills. But it could also be Satan because he sure likes to punish and and, and inflict God's people. Look at what he did to Job. That makes him happy. Another thing to note as we wrap up is that these bodies of ours, they will eventually pass away. These physical shells, these bodies, these tents, the Bible calls them tents, they will eventually pass away. Why? Because of sin. But the wages of sin is death. Sin is going to kill every one of us. At some point, these bodies will fail because they rot away, right? And then when that happens, these souls of ours will fly away, right? I'll fly away. Remember that hymn? That's probably a Bruce special on his top 10 list. Our our souls will fly away, right? When these bodies fail, when they finally give out, they will fly away to the presence of Christ and they will remain with Him, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 8, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, And yet, and yet, when the trumpet sounds and Christ returns, the thing Job asked for, the ultimate defeat of sin and death, the resurrection will finally occur. And these bodies of ours will come to life. They will be raised imperishable. They will be rejoined with our souls, thus making us complete. Why? So that we can come back with Christ and rule and reign on earth with Him. That's what's coming. That's what Job wanted. And when Christ comes, that's when it happens. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 15. Are you longing for that day? Hmm? 2020 has given us a lot of fun things. And to top it off toward the end of the year, it gives us the most bizarre, weird election in history. Thank you, 2020. Right? Right? I think tomorrow when we wake up, Biden will have taken Australia and Germany. Right? I was going to move to Australia, but maybe not now. Hey, we're not in control of this thing. We're not in control of this thing, man. And so whoever it is that takes the White House, that's God's man for the job, whether good or bad. I mean, we just dealt with four years of Boss Hog. Come on. Come on. What I'm telling you is that we have something to look forward to, and it isn't who's going to be in White House, because if that's what we're looking forward to, boy, your hope is going to be dashed to pieces whenever your guy gets in there and starts to blow it, because that's what they'll do, because they're sinners. We have something that is so much more grand and beautiful and awesome, something that we can really sink the teeth of our hope into, and that is Christ coming back, and that is new bodies, imperishable bodies, 
glorified bodies. That's, that's what we aim for here. That's what we long for here, right? It's so easy, though, to get focused on what's going on here and now, isn't it? And to get frustrated by it. My wife's like, you are a hypocrite. That's what she's thinking. And I am. I am because I get my eyes off of the prize onto this stuff happening down here in the horizontal. These are strange, strange times. They are bizarre times, right? I don't think any of us in our lifetime thought we would see the things that have happened in 2020, right? 2020 is like Voldemort. You can't name it. Don't ever use the name, right? Don't ever say it. The name that cannot be named. What is it? 2020. Get out of my sight. I mean, it's, it's just been a crazy year. But you know what? It's been God's year. God is still on His throne, still reigning and ruling over the cosmos. He's in control. And the best that we can do here, Job had a hope, and that was Christ coming in the resurrection. That's the best we can do. We, we aim our hope and our focus on Christ's return in this resurrection. That's what I'm telling you to do. And remind me to do it even tomorrow because by 4 o'clock today, I'll be going, you see what happened in Pennsylvania? <laughs> I think we all agree that, that elections and these things have implications, but we need to remember. We may agree to that, but we need to remember that we belong to a, a bling. It is blingy. We belong to a kingdom, right? A kingdom of priests the kingdom of Christ. One of these days, the sky will crack, the trumpet will sound, and the sky will crack, and He will come back, and it won't matter who's king here or president there. None of that will matter. He'll lay it all to waste and establish His mighty throne in Jerusalem. I'll finally get to go to Israel. <laughs> Been wanting to do it, but it's like 7K. Love offering. <laughs> You're like, we don't have that much love for you. <laughs> we'll finally be with our king. Job's hope was the resurrection. Our hope is the resurrection. May we focus on Christ's return and the resurrection. I think that undoubtedly that kind of focus will help to get us through these unprecedented, bizarre, uncertain times, right? We, we really have one thing that's certain, right? Of everything that we have access to, it's this. This is the only thing that's certain. Whoa, sorry, microphone. <laughs> Looks good against that green backdrop, doesn't it? <laughs> the Word of God. That's it. The Word of God is certain. It is certain. What God has said is true and will come to pass. So that's where our hope lies, right? Amen? Amen? Can we do that together? We need to do it together. I can't do it on my own. Can you do this on your own, Dustin? We need each other. Can you do it on your own, Brenda? No, we can't. We need each other. And we need to help each other stay focused on that which really matters. And we need to remember as well, not just the coming of Christ and the resurrection, but we are ambassadors here. We have been appointed by the high king of kings to be representatives of the gospel. This thing that Job has presented to us today, the message, the good news, the only thing that has any power to really make change. It doesn't matter what you implement in the government. 
The gospel changes people for all eternity. So we need to go out and proclaim that. Amen? We need to preach it to ourselves, preach it to our families, and preach it to our neighbors. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You are Abba. And you have nothing but love for us. Even when you chasten and discipline us, it's, it's coming from not anger or wrath, but pure, absolute love because you aim to preserve us. Thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for helping us refocus a little bit more this morning on Christ and His return and the resurrection. Thank you for putting the gospel in the book of Job. Thank you for that. Thank you for helping us uncover it. I'm, I'm pretty certain that we wouldn't have probably dug it out of there if you hadn't helped us through your Spirit. But thank you for all your goodness to us and your endless mercy and your absolute love for us, your eternal acceptance for us. May we, Lord, really turn from sin and live repentant, confessional lives and, and turn away from the thing that is, is absolutely destroying this world. May we turn from it, every opportunity. Remind us in those moments when we're tempted. Remind us of Christ and the gospel that we might flee from sin and temptation and protect us and preserve us against the enemy. We have an adversary who roams to and fro looking for someone to devour. He's not a, a snappy chihuahua. He's like a roaring lion, and he does destroy people. God, we pray that you protect us against him. Lord, may we now sing to you, Lord, once more about this resurrection. That is our hope, the resurrection. That is our hope that Christ comes back and takes us to be with Him. We wait for that, Lord. May we be ready for that. How many of us can honestly say to you now that we are ready for that? I think we all desire it, but are our lives in order? Are we actually ready for it? If you were to come tonight, early in the morning even, 2 a.m., how would you find us? Hopefully asleep. But how would you find us? What would be in our minds? What would, what would our lives be like if you came back tomorrow? Oh, Lord, I pray that this message does not fall on deaf ears. Help us to, to be convicted and to ready ourselves for your mighty return. I think it's sooner than later. I certainly hope it is. May we all be ready for it. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name.